Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 3rd, 2015. This is episode 1549 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Not time for monster trucks, but for your calls to the Think Line. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. For those of you without uh, letters on your dial for whatever reason, 866-658-4465. You call that line, you'll get a voicemail message. Leave your message and your question and your comment. Do it like this. Make your point or ask your question in one, two sentences maximum immediately. Then give me your details. If you do that, you'll be more likely to get on the air. You'll be more likely to make a good call. Speak loud and clear. Do not turn your head away from the phone and then come back to the phone and then turn your head away. Very hard for me to fix that. It takes a lot of time. Delete the call. Also, if you're calling from a cell phone, considering you're going to be leaving a message, there will be nobody to tell you that you sound like that. So... Make sure you have a few bars on the phone before you make a call. Make sure you're in a quiet place. No calls to the back of a motorcycle, driving down the road in a truck at 155 miles an hour with the windows down, running a weed eater or a chainsaw. Any of those things will also result in you not getting on the air. Follow those rules, you're likely to get on the air. I'd say right now, out of the last week, at least 50% of the calls are getting on the air. With that, I want to tell you one other thing. I want to tell you one other thing. If you make me what I call a pity call, I absolutely will not put your call on the air. This is a pity call. Jack, I called this question before, and I don't know. Maybe it's not good enough to be on the air. <sighs> But if you would consider putting on the air, I mean, I listen all the time, and daily, just telling you. Uh, I get a pity call a month at least, and I don't do pity calls because I'd have to delete out all your pity. I'd have to go edit it. I don't edit your calls. I put them on, done, done. All right, so another little piece of advice there. Anyway, before I uh, get to your... Oh, one more. I got another one for you. Do not call and ask me a question and an expert council member a question that are totally different questions in one call. Call for me, call for the council member. Um, or if you're going to ask two different council members two different questions, they make one call for each. Don't leave me and the council members to chop your calls up. It's just... It's, it's not good. Anyway, before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors are among the best in the business, and they'll make you the best that you can be when it comes to being an armed citizen. If you are going to carry a weapon, it behooves you to get professional training. Rather than, what gun should I invest in next? How about investing in you, the operator, the linchpin, the final moving part in the triangle of gun operator effectiveness, the weapon, the ammo, and then you. You can buy the weapon and the ammo off the shelf. It is what it is, and it does what it does. You are actually the biggest variable, and it's necessary for you to have optimum training if you're going to perform at an optimum level when lives are on the line. Learn how to do that at FortressDefense.com. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Berkey Water Filtration Systems, of course. And today I'm going to talk to you uh, in response to a question we get. Another great reason to have a Berkey. I'll leave it till then, but I'll tell you what. When I saw this question, I thought, I bet there's a lot of people out there that are going to worry about it. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm not worried about it. You know why? Because I have a Berkey. The most cost-effective and one of the easiest, simple, dead simple, and therefore 
in, you know, it doesn't fail on you. Ways to keep your water optimum for your drinking. Check them out today uh, at Directive21.com. That's the website, Directive21.com. And not only does he have great Berkey products, he's got a lot of other great products for your prepping needs. Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason at Directive21.com. Next up today, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Become a proud member of the MSB Legions. Those are people that say, you know what, we love what you do, Jack. I want to support your show. Here's 50 bucks a year or five bucks a month to do just that. Now, here's the thing. I have so many discounts available to you that I've negotiated for members of the MSB that you will get your money back if you are buying anything from the guns to gardens, tactical to practical, all the stuff we talk about all the time. Discounts on plants, discounts on seeds, you know, discounts on training. You name it, I've got it for you in there. It's inconceivable to me that if you're making investments in your preps, that you're not going to save 50 bucks a year using my membership program. So that's how I built it. There's another question today about pricing. We'll talk about that when I get there. But really consider joining the MSB. It's an awesome, awesome way to help support what we're doing. And I do try to make it win, win, win. Win for you, win for the, the vendors that do the discounts. And uh, win for me, of course, so I can do what I love doing, which is helping you live that better life. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. All of you qualify for a discount, including first responders as well, EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. Just email me, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, TSP service discount, the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences tops, and I will get that discount quote back to you. Please do it before, not after you join. I don't do rebates for the service discount. I do discounts when you buy, okay? Anyway, with that, uh, let's get into the main topic of today's show. First, I have a little announcement for you guys. Um, Kevin uh, Keegan from Permaethos recently emailed me and said there's over 200 people that we have yet to send their founder's certificate and founder's coin to from Permaethos. An email went out to every founding student. This is the first thousand, not the people that got in on the second wave for Class 001, but the first thousand members, the founders that have founders' positions in the company. We went out and had a custom-made, beautiful coin made by uh, Northwest Territorial Mint for, Mint for all founders. And uh, that and a certificate is being mailed in the, you know, the United States mail to all founders. However, it's been a year since we did this almost, and some people may have moved. We don't want to mail it and have it lost. We might not have the right thing on the record. So we sent out this email. So click this link, go to this page, and update your information, and then we'll send you your stuff. Well, about 200 people have yet to do that. So today I have out Permaethos Founders Claim Your Founders Certificate and Coin link in today's show notes under Resources for Today's Show, very last link in that list. If you are a founder and you have yet to do that, please do that so we can get your coin and a beautiful certificate to you to thank you for helping us get Permanent Ethos off the ground last year. Anyway, with that, let's now look at the year that was the episode 1549. We have the end of humanity as we know it, the beginnings of Skynet. I'm not going to read that one, but I want to tell you that Nintendo is part of this story. Yes, Nintendo, the video game company, and they actually opened their doors in 1889 selling Hafuda cards. Let me see if I can get that right. Hanafuda cards. Did you know that? They're not Pokemon cards either. Um, then we also have the Treason of Assembly and the First Act of Uniformity. Unfortunately, we're starting to have assembly being considered a crime in our country today once again. But I'm going to read Lovesick Grass. Tobacco arrives in China. 
The soldiers of the Ming Dynasty distribute tobacco as they march across the country, fighting off Mongols and enforcing the trading ban at various Chinese ports. Apparently, the ban on trade with the Portuguese does not include tobacco. The Chinese call it lovesick grass because it gives one a dizzy feeling of well-being, similar to how one feels when lovesick. It soon becomes clear that the demand for tobacco from the New World rivals the demand for silver. The Chinese are writing books filled with advice on how to smoke. It's all the rage, along with sugarcane, tobacco becomes a cash crop in the New World. My take by Alex Shrug. I must credit the book 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created. I'm drawing much of the data from it. The evidence of tobacco reaching China was established when several pipes were found dated to 1549. The Chinese laws against piracy were never successful because the West simply had too many products the Chinese really, really wanted. Nowadays, the reverse is true, with low-priced goods being snapped up um, by eager Western buyers. Even new, even low-income consumers can get a taste of what the rich enjoy, such as DVD players and GPS devices. The flip side is that it sends dollars to a regime that oppresses and overworks its factory employees to the point of suicide. But people must have their smartphones at affordable prices, even the Chinese. Interesting take, and I agree. Um, I also have my own take. This is completely different. It's about tobacco. So here's here's my view of tobacco and why it became the commercial success that it did. I don't believe that tobacco remains lovesick grass for very long. I don't believe it remains something that you really get a lot out of, you smokers. I think tobacco is a lot like a lot of the pain medications that are out there that people are put on when they're in serious pain. And they end up addicted to it. And they end up addicted to those painkillers after the pain is gone. And while you or I might take some of these different prescription painkillers and get some sort of a euphoric feeling initially, it's not long with continuous use before that euphoric feeling doesn't really come around anymore. And what happens is it's the absence of the drug that makes you feel bad. So the drug then doesn't make you feel good. It simply prevents you from feeling bad. And that's what all addictive substances end up doing in the end. Addictive substances aren't like, so I can feel good. They're so I can not feel like shit because I don't have it anymore. And I think that that can happen psychologically with a lot of things, but there's things that are biochemically addictive. And if used sufficiently are biochemically addictive for, let's say, 95% of people that would use them. Whether I want to be a smoker or not, if I forced myself to smoke for, let's say, two months, I'm probably going to end up addicted to nicotine in the form of tobacco smoke. Even if I find it detestable, if I just gave myself the experiment and said, I'm going to do this for two months. And that is the type of product that lends itself to commercial production. What doesn't do that that you can grow in the new world and you can smoke? Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the first call of today. I'll let you guys figure that one out for yourself. Oh, real quick, remember I am doing a work with Jack weekend, not this weekend. Of course, it's Easter weekend coming up. But next weekend, 4-11-15, uh, this time I'm charging 10 bucks per Family. So if you're there with your wife, it's ten bucks. If you're there with your wife and kid, it's ten bucks. If you're there with your son, it's ten bucks. If you're there by yourself, it's ten bucks. And it's just to help provide more food and beverage. But uh, we're going to be doing some really cool stuff. 
we should have our apple trees here this week. They're not here yet, though, but supposedly they've shipped, so we should be planting the apple orchard. If Isons gets off their butt, we might be planting the vineyard. Uh, we're definitely going to be putting in a couple hundred feet, at least, of irrigation. So we're going to be doing the same as we did before with some other cool stuff. Um, these are the things I need to get done this year before summer gets here and kills everything. So uh, come on out. I'll be making uh, shredded pork. I'll be doing shredded por smoked pork shoulder shredded pork tacos uh, this time around because it's really easy to do that for this many people. And I already have about 10 people registered. You want to get that done because once I get to a certain point, I will close it. We can only take so many people, and I don't have a lot of people doing ride shares here. So at some point, I just go, I don't have the capacity for the vehicles at this point, and we're done. All right. With that, let's go ahead and take that first call to the Think Line 866-65-THINK. Hey, Jack. This is Richard. I had a question to you about manure contaminating wells mainly in agricultural uses. The reason I was asking is I was listening to public radio here in Wisconsin, and they were talking about the area around uh, Kiwani and how about 30% of the wells tested in the county were failing because of the high amounts of nitrogen and other, uh, you know, fertilizer type of things that uh, uh, were being found in, in the wells and contaminating them. Their response has been to do a referendum on ending all manure spreading between January and April. Now, I don't know the exact specifics of what is going on in the county. They say that because the water table is so low, or I should say that the uh, uh, bedrock layer is so low, about 20 feet in limestone, which is forest, below, uh, uh, below grade, that it allows the manure that is being spread in large amounts all over the, all over the area to seep in and contaminate the groundwater. While I don't doubt if done on a large area that manure could do this, I feel like even large-scale use of manure isn't probably the issue, and I feel like more that NPK fertilizers will be more of the issue than manure itself. I could be wrong, but I was wondering if you could shed some light on it. Thank you, Jack. Okay, starting out, to, to be fair... It is not the case that you cannot get excessive nitrogen contamination of your water uh, solely from manure sources. That is possible, and it probably does happen, and it probably doesn't happen with people doing paddock shift or ranging a small flock of ducks or turkeys or, or, or pigs or cattle across land or doing anything like that. It probably does happen in large-scale uh, operations where massive amounts of waste are put into a single source, and then subjected to the elements and leached out with water into the soil in excess of what the plants in the soil can use. And at that point, the excess nitrogen, uh, as it goes through the nitrogen cycle, becoming nitrite, nitrate, can end up uh, going down into the water table. And at certain rates of that, it can exceed what would be considered safe drinking. Now, it's debatable how dangerous it really is, but... It is, uh, it, is, it is definitely not good to be drinking water with high amounts of nitrogen, uh, nitrite, nitrate, etc. in it. Now, as I said during the advertising segment for Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy, this is another good reason to have a Berkey. Um, the Berkey water filtration systems, black filter elements, will re remove 95% of nitrite uh, from your water. 
And, and hence, there might still be some there, but there's probably always some there, and it's, it's, it's down to levels that aren't going to be really affecting you unless your water is so bad it's probably, you know, lethal when you, when you, when you drink it without filtering it, and you'd already know you had that problem. So, um, this is another reason, uh, to have a Berkey. This is another reason for people to say, well, I'm on a well, so I don't need a Berkey. Well, maybe it would be a good idea for at least the water you're drinking, uh, to go through, uh, a water filter. We certainly do that here. So that's um, that's one mitigating way to handle this in the first place. The next thing is to not put animals in confinement, feedlot, CAFO-style applications and to not dump massive amounts of manure onto a field in a form of fertilizer. So uh, spreading manure on a field is an organic fertilization method. It works good. It's effective. But if you're doing organic and you're just saying okay I'm going to do organic just like conventional except I'm going to be organic what happens is you end up using excessive inputs excessive manure and you end up in almost as bad a situation as just dumping NPK from a standpoint of nitrogen getting into the ecosystem getting into the groundwater getting into the surface water as well causing algal blooms and things like that so It's not that you can't cause a problem with manure. It's just not usually the biggest reason that we have these problems. Okay, Let's think about it from a standpoint of somebody doing proper management of livestock and how much they would likely be contributing to this. Without getting into a massive soil biology lesson, let's just accept the fact that when a cow shits on the ground, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on with that cow shit beyond it just sitting there and leaching into the ground. And if instead of sitting in a barren field where there's so much manure, everything's been burned off by the nitrogen, or instead of being tilled in at huge above necessary levels as an organic application, it's simply a cow patty in a diverse field with all types of vegetation and wildlife around it, in come the dung beetles. They start rolling away pieces of it. In come ducks. Ducks eat cow shit. Okay? The cows walk on it and mash it, and it breaks down into pieces. It binds up with other organic matter. The high nitrogen ends up being mixed with grass litter and begins a self-composting process. It's small pieces, parts. Some very complete, some incomplete, some halfway complete, etc. And it gets spread out. Other animals come through and break it up and, and break it down into smaller component parts. So we don't have... A, a, a bright green. So, if you want to know if you have a, a nitrogen excess in a field that you're managing with cattle, if you come through the next season and you have all these clumps of big, bright, bright green grass, right, and they're just growing almost like little clumps amidst all the other, and you just see this massive color difference, and it's like ridiculously bright green. And when the cattle go through, they graze all the grass except those clumps. Those are the clumps where a patty sat for a full year. Never moved, nothing ever broke it up, and the grass grew up underneath it like that without it ever being part of the larger cycle and having all these uh, this soil food web kind of act on it. Fungus, bacterium, arthropods, microarthropods, nematodes, etc. Okay? So if you have enough of that, you can have nitrogen leaching into the, to the, to the groundwater. Okay? But <laughs> when it comes to the, the real source of this problem, What we're talking about is these applications of chemical fertilizers where the, we know by how much the plant needs and how much the recommended application levels are. The plants are taking up no more than 5% to 10% of what's being applied. In a highly 
bioavailable form, and therefore it means it's what? Water-soluble. So that means that that, that nitrogen is immediately able to be leached, immediately able to sink, immediately able to affect the groundwater. And it is indeed your primary primary concern. Now, that doesn't really help you with fixing the problem, though, does it? So you can come down and say, like, all the people with a couple cows in their backyard need to get rid of them. That's not going to do jack shit. That's not going to do anything because it's not the problem. You're in Wisconsin. You're in farm country. You got every other thousand acres being drenched with this shit. There's your problem. You're also, and there's a caller later, it might have been you got snuck by me and get two calls in, I'm not sure, but also from Wisconsin saying that the groundwater is only about five feet deep in a part of Wisconsin. Now, if you're using a sandpoint well, it's sandy soil with large amounts of NPK fertilizer and large amounts of confinement manure, okay, <laughs> and you got a well that's 20 feet deep, you're going to have too much nitrogen in your water. So you can either go deeper into a different aquifer with your drill, Uh, for your well, or you can filter your water, or you can get another source of water. Those are your those are your three choices there, and they're the only three choices you have, because if you're in that environment, you getting rid of every animal off your property, including your dog and your cat, is not going to fix this. And this is not a Wisconsin problem. This is all over farm country in the United States, and a mu much of this stuff is also getting into the surface water goes into the Mississippi, and that's why you have a giant expanding dead zone every summer in the Gulf of Mexico uh, in the Mississippi River Delta area, where everything just dies for a few months a year. Oh, it's okay. No, it's not. Okay? So the reality is that we, we didn't have this problem with 50 million buffalo roaming across the country. And by the way, a, a kabillion passenger pigeons, flocks of geese and ducks in the New World before we killed everything and ruined habitat, etc., were so massive they darkened the sky. How much shit do you think that rained down? And we didn't have nitrogen contamination in, in our water system. Why? Because they were running natural imbalance systems. So the solution to this problem is to begin to develop systems based on sustainable practices that use natural process and never accumulate too much uh, fertility in a single location. In other words, to be able to reinvest reinvest the surplus. Because the surplus isn't just the money the farmer makes at the end of the year or all the corn. Okay, Return the surplus in a proper manner to the system so that it can be handled by the system or the system goes out of whack and goes into chaos. So can manure cause this problem? Yes. When I put 5,000 cows on two acres and they sit there and shit, Uh, in or, and walk around in it up to their armpits for four weeks while I'm doing my final corn feed to fatten them up, to process them, to ship them to every Kroger and Albertsons in the country. Yes, 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 yes. That can be a problem. When I have a confinement hog operation, and I have 20,000 hogs shitting every day, and all their shit being washed out the back in the giant piles that sit there for days on end until some dump truck comes and takes them to some other festering place while they're supposedly composted. Yeah, I can have that problem. Absolutely. Can a hundred cows being paddock shift on a hundred acres that are being properly managed in a good ecosystem cause this problem? Absolutely not. Absolutely. They're not even contributing to it. 
If anything, they're probably helping to mitigate it by building strong natural cycles in nature that actually create much more of a filtering effect and a, and a, a remedial effect to these types of things. So there you go. But my short answer, get a Berkey like I've been telling you for seven years and you won't worry as much. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. Uh, this is Nick in Colorado. And my question is, what are the ideal criteria you used to measure the balance and trade-off between time and the money? Detail, uh, my family and I are in the early stages of preparing for our big move and transition to creating our own business later this year. However, uh, just recently, I had a job offer practically fall on my lap. And while I admit I'm totally burned out on corporate employment, I can't deny that pushing our plans back a year to work this job would net maybe an extra $80,000 or more to our savings. We don't need the extra cash, strictly speaking, but it would give us more options and much greater safety cushion, better peace of mind. At the same time, uh, on the other hand, it feels like a little like selling out, and I keep the notion of putting this thing off any longer. And uh, while we're not past the Rubicon, we can change course and postpone our plans without missing any big opportunities or gains, I do still feel that precious time to Away. Uh, anyway, on a largely intuitive level, I've already made my particular decision, but it's made me realize there's a need for me to better understand on the logical cost-benefit analysis level the balance and trade-offs between time and money. Uh, I don't know, maybe you could share what time-money criteria you weigh most heavily when you decide to give up your corporate job to go all in with TSP and your related endeavors. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks for your time, Jack. All right, well, this is a very deep, complicated matter that should involve, if you're a religious person, prayer. If you are a non-religious person, quiet contemplation, deep discussions with your family, and probably not a phone call to Jack to ask what to do. Uh, and the, you know, the, the interest of you guys doing what's best for your family, there are a thousand variables that you could never convey to me in a phone call. So I'm going to give you my advice anyway, but I'm going to lead off with that and say in the end you have to do what's right for you and your family. My instinct is I would be very tempted to take this job, to bankroll that $80,000, and to go into things a lot stronger, uh, especially if you can do the following things. Number one, if you can really put $80,000 into your bankroll over the next year, then you need to have a place where the money that creates the $80,000 immediately goes where if anybody tries to touch it, a giant eagle comes down with a sledgehammer and beats you in the face for touching the money because that's the only reason you're doing it based on the plan you just gave me. Like you should literally, if you think about touching the money, you should get one of those dog shot collars and put it on your neck. And whenever you see anybody heading for the, the past you know, checkbook or whatever or the bank account that has it on there, everybody in the family that has access to it should wear one of these collars and the other person should shock the shit out of them and say, no, that's not what that's for. Okay, so the, my biggest concern is you'll do it and then you won't put the money away. You'll start realizing how great it is to have all this money and by the end of that year, we'll think, well, one more year and then one more year and then, well, one more year. And then one more year. And in four years, you, you maybe have saved up the 80 that you were supposed to do in one year. But now you got all this other stuff, and you go, oh, it's good to be a slave. See, that's where the, that's where the, con I'm not concerned about your next year. I'm concerned about your next five. All right, so if you're going to do this and take this job, 
then again, I would sequester that money in, in such a way that I would make it impossible to get at it, it within a year without having to do something complicated. I, I wouldn't put it in CDs or something because God knows what kind of thing could go on, but I would like open a totally separate bank account, okay, uh, just a savings account in a different bank. And then I would set up with your bank an automatic transfer, you know, once a month of a specific amount of money to that other bank. And I wouldn't even have online access to that money in that second bank. I would just make it too tempting to pop. Oh, we just need an extra hundred bucks. And next thing it's a thousand. And see what I'm saying? I would do that. And if you could do that, then have it an extra eighty thousand dollars when you take off on this new venture in your life. Man, you can live two years on that decent. You know, you ain't gonna live high in the hobby. You can live two years on that. It's a hell of a cushion. If there's a concern there, then is it too much of a cushion where it's too easy for you to half-ass your business? So that I'd be tempted to take it. But this is the other thing: you're you're a two, you know, a two adult family. All the groundwork for this business could be laid, and it could be started. I don't care what it is. Some level of part time over the next year. So that instead of like I quit and now I'm going to start my business, it's I'm quitting to start my business, and you're transitioning into that period. And maybe it's if you're if a two two person working family, you do the best you can with all of the setup in the first couple of months, and then a little bit of getting some traction, getting you know your marketing put together and everything. And by the time you go into that last six months, maybe somewhere along the line, mom is quitting and taking the reins of this. Until dad quits right behind her, and then the exodus happens. Um, that's my gut, but I could be totally wrong because there's way too many variables in here with your personal discipline, your goals, how close you. I mean, the first thing I'd say to you is, what is this business going to be? How far along in the planning of it are you? How long until it creates revenue? If you started it today, are you ready to start it today? Or are you just going to move out into the sticks onto a homestead and say, now we got to figure out what to do with ourselves? Those are such different scenarios. You really got to stop and think about this. Time versus money. There's no question that a job is trading your time for money. And every minute that I spend working for somebody else is a minute I don't spend working for myself. But if the, if the monetary return is sufficient, And if I am a good student of that monetary, steward of that monetary return, it can be more beneficial to spend, let's say, two more years at the grindstone. If all of a sudden the grindstone's cranking out 200 grand a year, and I'm sticking 80 of it into my sock drawer, yeah, there's 160 grand at the end of two years of that. And if I've transitioned to a business at that point that just pays the bills, my retirement's looking good, man. If my business just pays the bills, $160,000, if I get 20 years left to work in my business, and the value of the business and everything, that $160,000 is smartly invested, whether it be in my own business or in conventional investments with a lot of safety built into it, I'm looking at a good retirement. So I'll do it. In fact, I did. But remember, I built my business at the same time I was working. I, I did a part-time business. And I had a lot of control over that because I was an owner in the other company that employed me. Um, not everybody's in that role. I know that that was, it wasn't luck. It was by design. I built that opportunity for myself. So that type of thing can be done. But if you're 40 and you're just now, I want to start a business, 
and you're nowhere near that level, then you got to figure out what you're going to do to shortcut it. So, and again, you have to make your own decision, talk about it, pray about it, contemplate it. Um, I would personally have a deep discussion with my wife, if I were you, and I would say, let's both go away for a day and think about this. And I would take like a long walk in the woods thinking about it. And I would evaluate, and I, and I wouldn't let fear prevent me from just going off and doing the business, but I would evaluate, am I really ready for this? And I would evaluate the thought of another year of confinement, and I would balance those. And I'd ask my wife to do the same thing, and I'd come back and have another long conversation about it. And I think at that point, you're going to know what you need to make a decision, and it may have nothing to do with anything I said. That might be the best advice I gave you in the whole answer. Um, let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Scott Voigt from Central Michigan. I want to know whether to invest in freedom or walk to freedom. I'm calling about Baker's Green Acres, who raised quote-unquote feral hogs. He was persecuted by the Michigan DNR three years ago, and you talked about it in episode 886. This is an update and call for help. After winning, having the $700,000 fine thrown out and his pigs declared legal, he is left with legal bills, a business to rebuild, and a family to care for. This week, the Farm Bureau canceled his insurance because of a visit from the insurance underwriter's office in Lansing. They listed three reasons why. His legal herd share cow milking operation, his everyone-can-farm traditional farm school, and his wood-burning stove in his house. He is down to only two options for his family, take investments or memberships in the farm, or get a moving van and pack it in. My idea and question is this. Can we make this a fast-track permit ethos farm or even just an ant farm? Or do we have to walk to freedom? Thanks for everything you do, Jack. I'll be listening intently. You know, this is one of those things where it, you know, we, we talked about the five stages of grief, and it's very easy to slip back from acceptance to depression. Um. It's ridiculous that this family is dealing with what it is. But can we make this a fast-track perma-ethos farm? Perma-ethos is doing some great things. We're really proud of what we've done so far. We're really trying to figure out where we go and what we do next. And I really want to help as many people as I can. But we are not in the condition to fix that problem. We are really not. I personally, when I look at the economics of that situation, want to help. I, I, you know, I, I just went to their site. I don't see anything I can do other than buy a copy of a movie called Hogwash to, to help out right now if there's any kind of legal defense or something like that going on. But I guess the legal defense is not the problem. Now it's just straight up economic problems. Uh, you know, my, my gut is it would be better for this family to find a place where what they want to do is welcomed. And, and to move their operation there. And I would rather help them do that than help them stay in a place that has turned their back on people doing what they do, which is providing high-quality food where you can know the person that produced it. And, and when I think about, well, how much money would it take to fix this problem? My, my next question then would be, well, how far would that go to reestablishing this in a place where nobody's going to F with them? And my gut is, and this is so hard to say for somebody else, right? Because this is their family, and they probably have roots there, and they probably love the place 
I mean, you don't, I, I think of everything I have into my little three acres right now. And occasionally Dorothy and I think about, you know, long term, if we wanted a different type of house or something, like, would we move? And I, I think I could never leave this place now. But maybe I would have to. So I know it's easier for me to say that, that it would be better for this family to, to pick up and move to a place where their rights to do what they're doing is protected. And it's not the North, United, North, North Central or Northeastern United States anymore, guys. It isn't. And you start to wonder, well, where is it? So here's where we're at with this right now. We have to figure out what is the line in the soil with this. Where are the beachheads right now? Do we have the best opportunity to not have this happen to us? And I think we need to throw down in those places. We need to be talking to... So we have, you know, over half the farmers in America will be retiring in the next 15 years. We have all these young people that are getting off their asses and figuring out how to finance their dreams and building these farms. And the idea of, of creating permaethos farms was one I really wanted to do, but when I, when I, what I've learned in the last year is it doesn't work that way. A farm requires so much work and so much effort, it, it, it requires that the person doing the work own the damn farm. That's why it's always been that way. That's why sharecropping's always been about putting corn and beans in. You drive a tractor, it's like any other job. When you talk about this kind of farming, the guy that's out there dragging a chicken tractor around every day, he's got to have ownership in it. You know, I can't come in and own part of your farm, take 10% of your farm's revenue. It doesn't work. Like, we're trying to figure out now, can we create a co-op? Can we create some way to, to help springboard farms or something without actually trying to, like, stick our fingers in other people's pie? It just doesn't work. But we do need to figure out where are the places where you can do this right now and, and have it be the easiest possible, the least amount of challenges possible. And I feel like once we find those places, we need to encourage new farmers. This is where to go. This is where to do this. This is how to do this. And if we're jacked with there, it's time that we, that we, we, we have a point where we can't back up anymore. I, I don't see again. This is where I try to make myself Balance acceptance with still being a warrior and willing to fight. Like, I've accepted that the majority of the people in this country are freaking morons. They're absolute idiots that think food comes from plastic containers, and they think that we should be putting diapers on cows for God's sakes. All right? Because of this nitrogen thing we just talked about. These are people that think it's completely acceptable to confine a pig into a cage so small it can't turn around, but don't think it's okay for a pig to live in the snow. I mean, this is a screwed up sick society that we're in. But there's a, there, there are, it's not dozens, it's not hundreds, it's not thousands. There are millions of people that are part of this local real food movement that are starting to demand this. And there has to be a way to get enough of us concentrated into a single or several beachhead locations that it becomes impossible to jack with us anymore. And I feel like it would be better for experienced people like the bakers to go to a place like that and help others do what they're doing. Because here's the reality. We as small producers have to band together to where our small production equals large production to get respect. 
to, to, to make things economically viable. So that if I raise a two, if I raise 300 pigs and I can sell 200 of them direct, then I can sell my other 100 as part of a lot of 10,000 off into a main market that, that, that values that pork is meeting certain criteria to be pastured pork that is above and beyond anything that comes from Smithfield. And we get there with volume. We get there with volume, with collective participation through things like co-ops, like Organic Valley, is an example of just that being done. And we need to be smarter about this, and we need to fight things that way. I mean, we're in a position now where this guy won his legal fight. He won, and he still lost. The state so ripped him apart that the insurance company said, nope, not going to do it. Now, so I have an interesting thought, though. What if somebody were to find out who this insurance company is? Who is this insurance company that dropped them? And what if, I don't know, let's say we got into the network of farmers that's out there. There are millions of farmers, even though it's much less than it was a hundred years ago. There's a lot of farmers out there. I'll bet you that it's a it's an insurance company that a lot of farmers use. What if even if another insurance company wouldn't pick up the bakers, what if all of those farmers not only canceled their policy and moved it to the other place, said, because you've done this, we're not doing business with you. Do you think that might get their attention? I'm just saying. Do you think that might get their attention? We're at a point now where we have to start using economics as part of our tool chest for the insurgency. And if it's attacking the insurance company, fine. It's not a boycott, it's a leaving. Boycotts are bullshit. Boycotts are, I refuse to go to Disneyland because of their stance on blah, 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 blah. And what, how many times have you been to Disneyland in the last 10 years? Well, uh, uh, I was going to go. That's a boycott. That's a boycott. What you need is an exodus. Is that possible? I don't know. Something tells me that this insurance company, you know, and then the other side of it is, are they just making a business? See, this is where you don't know what to do. If you just act out of anger, five stages of grief, right? Okay. Because this may be a business decision for them. They may feel there's just too much liability, just too much liability there. And let me tell you, insurance is no fun to jack with. Basically, insurance companies want to write you a policy and then have it only apply if, you know, you're flooded or something and you had flood insurance. They want to, they, the, the goal of an insurance company is to never pay a claim. That's the goal of an insurance company, to never pay a claim. To whatever they did cover, when something does happen, they go, yeah, but you're not covered for that. right? So is this insurance company simply saying, hey, look, we don't want to, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know. But I just feel like what happened here is a strong family business was attacked by the state. It was defended by the collective successfully. But the, the attack was with such malice and such aggressive nature that it sufficiently weakened the farm to the point where it, it might be too late to save the patient. It, it, it makes me think of Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet. Um, that might sound like a, a stretch, but let me, let me uh, find it real quick so I read it to you exactly as, as it happens in the, in the play. In the play, what has happened is um, Mercutio, who's Romeo's cousin, has had a 
fight, a sword fight, uh, with uh, a character named Halbert, who ends up soon after killed by Romeo in revenge. Um, but here's, here's what it made me think of. Mercutio, I am hurt. A plague on both your houses. I am sped. Is he gone and hath nothing? Benvolio, another character. What art thou hurt? Mercutio, I, I a scratch. A scratch. Mary, tis enough. Where's my page? Go villain, fetch a surgeon. Romeo, courage, man. The hurt cannot be much. No, tis not so deep as a well, nor so wide as a church door, but tis enough. T'will serve. Ask for me tomorrow, and you shall find me a grave man. I am prepared. I warrant for this world. So, I won't read the rest of it, but basically he ends up cut in this duel. And the wound doesn't seem that bad, but it is but a scratch of a cat. But in this case, this cat's scratch results in death, and he dies. And Romeo, in a furious rage, runs out. And sliced Halbert. And of course we all know the story doesn't end very well for anybody in this, this play. It ends in tragedy. And that's where we have to kind of be careful with response and anger. Because generally that leads to poor decision making. And while the action may, in, in the, the, the timelessness of nature, you've killed my friend, therefore I've killed you, seem just, the results are not what we're looking for. And so, does it make sense to punish this insurance company, or is it simply responding to the situation that's on the ground right now? That I, we don't want the liability of this. I, I just don't know. I just don't know. But this is not about Baker's Green Acres. I'm sure it is to the Baker family, and I mean no disrespect. This is about the larger reality here, that there is a point where we have to say, This is it. There is no more. And I'm not sure exactly how and where and by what means we do that yet. But I do know it has to be through a unification, and it has to be in sufficient numbers that it becomes very difficult for anybody to do anything about it. It seems to me that there are some places where it's already a good place to do this type of farming and this type of ranching, and not just farmers that want to do it large scale, but homesteaders as well that want an acre or two or a half an acre to, to move into an area where they're enough of a force that they can't really be jacked with, at least by anybody below the county level. Like the count, like they can influence at the county level high enough, uh, to, to push back. And I, I don't know. This is not easy. And it, it really feels at times like there is a war against everything that we stand for which is the proper and ethical treatment of animals, the the production of good, high-quality food, that it's all, in the end, something that the people in power simply want to control as a singular commodity with a centralized distribution system, that that's the real problem. And and I don't know how to help the Baker family. And if, if, if I can, I will. And if you can tell me exactly what I can do, fine. But I also wonder if on this battle... That strike of the sword has killed the soldier who is just lying and dying of some festering wound. And might it be better that you amputate the leg and, and then take the patient through a convalescence to a new place? And that might be where we're at. And that's sad. No one ever wants to admit defeat. But I'll tell you what's worse than admitting defeat. Failing to admit defeat 
that could be mitigated at to such a point where the defeat becomes complete. And, and we have to be smart about the way we handle things going forward. But at some point, we do have to say, this is it. No more. And I, I look to all of you for any advice on how we figure out how to do that, where that point is, and how we make it happen. I don't have every answer. I certainly don't have this one. Uh, with that, let's change things up a little bit, do something a little bit more uh, lighter. Um, I had a question last week about a pond, and specifically aeration. Uh, it was for me and Ben Falk. I gave an answer last week. This week, I'll just go ahead, instead of replaying the question, it's about a aerating a 500,000-gallon pond. This was Ben Falk's response to that, and I'll come back with another one. Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk here, uh, Whole Systems Design with the Expert Council. Uh, the question about a uh, 500,000-gallon farm pond in Colorado. Um, I, I wish I could have uh, easy answers for you, but um, as with most things, there's, there's some more questions that need to be addressed before uh, I could say um, best ways of, of aerating the pond. Um, first, I would ask... Why do you need to aerate the pond? Um, if you have enough catchment area and or enough shade and or enough biology, you can have really high-quality water uh, even for swimming. Um, those are the three aspects of, of main aspects of um, maintaining pond water quality. You can also not have one or all of those and uh, still have a really functional pond for fertigation or using nutrient-rich water. But 500,000 gallons is a pretty big pond. You might want to use it for swimming. Um, so I would, I would address those three questions. Um, and then if you felt you had to aerate it, which I think would be um, a sign of design failure if you had to mechanically aerate it. I'm not saying it's, you know, it's, there's never a role for it, but we've been able to get around mechanical aeration with just good shading, really good biology. And even with, with very low flow, just flow from a small building. Um, so you really only need the first two of those three. Um, I would um, probably look to, if I had to have mechanical aeration, solar direct, so just solar PV to a pump that pumps just when the sun's shining, no energy storage, like in the form of batteries, would be good to get around. But I would just urge you to look at passive um, aeration first through plants um, for, for obvious reasons there. Uh, but good luck with it, and um, perhaps if you have answers to some of those other questions, we can... Uh, address address the challenge again but thanks a lot hey jack brian from delaware and a new member to the msb my question if you'll indulge me is two parts first what would your stripped down edc bag look like for international travel two what would you or stephen harris recommend as a battery supply that i can take with me in my travels to recharge our phones details we're going to Ireland in June with my family, and I'm going to carry my EDC bag with me everywhere I go, take it as my carry-on. Obviously, there are things I can't take with me on airplanes and international travel, so I'm going to strip it down. That's where I want to see what yours would look like. The second part of that is we all have iPhones. We're going to be on our feet a lot, and I'm looking for a power supply I have several, but they're not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for one that we can pop into a pub somewhere, throw all our phones on the table, and have a rapid charge and enough power to charge several phones, get us through the days, and then I can recharge it in the hotel at night. Um, and 
something that would have an international plug if I would need one. I'm not sure if Ireland has uh, weird power outlets. Anyway, uh, thanks for everything you do and the show, and be safe. All right, so I sent that one over to Stephen Harris, and I have yet to even hear this answer myself, but I've been talking to Steve all week about it by email, and I know he put a tremendous amount of effort into doing probably uh, what I expect to be one of the most amazing uh, bits of coverage on what seems like a relatively simple question uh, you've ever heard. I know he's even put up some stuff on the web for you guys and, and what have you. So, Steve, what have you been working on for us all week on this one question? Uh, let's hear from you, man. Brian from Delaware. This is Steve Harris with the Expert Council calling in to answer your question. And for everyone out there listening, I actually called Brian. He has six people in his group going to Ireland, and they all have iPhones, iPhone 5Ss, 5Cs, and iPhone 6s. For all of you who do not know what EDC is, it stands for Everyday Carry, stuff that you're carrying in your pockets or in a bag or around your waist or your backpack. It's something you always have with you or near you wherever you're going. Now, I'm going to try to keep this short because I could talk about international travel for an hour at least. I have spent three evenings putting stuff on the bottom of prep1234.com just so you can see everything I'm talking about here and you can get even more information than what I'm talking about here. I got some really good emergency stuff up there that any international traveler should know. Again, that's PREP1234.com. Now, here's something that's going to surprise you, and it works very good, and uh, I've had to do this for my wife and for some other friends. There are cases that contain batteries that go over and in and around your phone. It is seamlessly integrated. You would hardly know that there this is a battery case or an extra case around your iPhone and it even has some drop protection on it. My wife never charges her phone, always going around with a half-dead battery. Doesn't feel her gas tank either, always driving on E. So I got her this phone case for her iPhone 5S and she loves it. It's beautiful, it's integrated, it costs like 30 or 40 bucks. And it's got a battery in it that's about twice as big as the battery in her phone. So whenever she's going someplace and her phone is low on charge, all she does is turn on the battery in the case by pressing a button, and that battery then starts to charge the battery in the phone. It works very good and does it very quickly. Then once it gets up to about 90, 95%, you turn the battery off, and that's enough. Now, what I like about these for international travel is that you can't lose the battery. It's stuck there with the phone all the time. You don't have to have a cable to plug it in. So if some of the people in your party would get some of these um, battery phone cases, and again, I have them all up on Prep1234. I got a battery case for the iPhone 5, iPhone 5S, iPhone 5C, for the iPhone 6, and for the iPhone 6 Plus. I got one up there for the Galaxy S4 and one for the Galaxy S5. This should cover the majority of you. Now, again, I don't use this on my phone personally daily. Uh, if I'm going to travel, I will put one on my, uh, my iPhone S4. So, again, for me, I like to have a very rugged case around my phone. I have a ballistic case because I'm very hard on phones and my watches. But when I travel, I'm more gentle. It's in my uh, jacket pocket. 
or my shirt pocket, and the extra battery works great. My big concern is getting stuck on the tarmac for eight hours after a six-hour flight and not being able to read Kindle or watch movies or anything like that. Now, what you really called in and asked for, I'm going to give you my answer. My favorite. Love it. Use it all the time. Got my friends addicted to it. External battery. It's an external USB battery pack, okay? It's like the size of two cigarette packs together. And it's 20,000 milliamp hours. That's 20 amp hours. This is 13 times the size of the battery in your iPhone 5S. So it will recharge everyone's battery in your group pretty quickly. Now, there's only two USB ports on it, so you got to charge up two people, then charge up two more, then charge up two more. But it dumps energy into the phones pretty darn quickly. It is on prep1234.com. It is the Lime Fuel, L-I-M-E-F-U-E-L, charger, uh, USB battery pack. Cost all of 30 bucks for 20,000 milliamp hours. There's also a 15,000 milliamp hour for 25 bucks. Get the bigger one. This will be your best buddy when you're traveling around. It's what you asked for in the pub. Now I'm going to cover your charging. This is a detailed subject, people. I'm going to cover your charging of your devices in foreign countries where the voltage is 240 volts or 220 volts. There are two things for you to know about. There are adapters and there are converters. An adapter, you got funny European plugs, okay? You plug in your adapter, and the copper lugs go into the European outlet, and they change it over to a USA outlet. That's it. It's still 220 volts at the USA outlet. Even though it looks like a USA outlet, it's still 220 volts. That's an adapter. Adapts the pins over from European or African or Middle Eastern or Chinese over to American pins. Now, the thing is, many of the USB chargers that you would use to charge your phone, and oh, also, you use a USB charger to recharge the line fuel battery, many of your chargers will work between 110 and 240 volts. They're world chargers. They're made in China, so they want to sell the same things in China as they sell in the USA, so they make them so they work on any voltage. So even though you got this USA plug and this USA charger, and it's 240 volts, you can plug it in because the charger switches the voltage over to 5 volts for charging the USB automatically. Now, there are converters. A converter does what it says. It converts 220 volts down to 120 volts for USA. Now, almost all of the chargers out there and the chargers that I have up on Prep1234, they are world chargers, any voltage, okay? Now, my laptop is 120 volts only. It's not doesn't take 220 volts. So I would need to get a converter. And this is a bigger, heavier box that has transformers and electronics in it that transforms the voltage over to 120 volts for USA appliances. So I would need one of these for my laptop. I have a 300-watt and a 500-watt one up on the website. Those are about as big as you would want to carry. If you plug your curling iron or your hair dryer into it, it will blow the thing up. Okay, those things are well over a thousand watts. This is 300 or 500 watts. If you want a curling iron, buy one when you're in Europe for 15 euros, and then leave it in the hotel when you leave. It's a lot better than carrying around a 30-pound transformer. Now, I have, like I mentioned, I got the uh, 
chargers for USB ports up on the website. Go take a look at them. I got charger up there for 12 volts. Just because you're in a foreign country and not going to be using a car doesn't mean you shouldn't have a 12-volt plug-in charger with you. You might find yourself needing one. I also cover how to recharge your phone from just lifting the hood on any vehicle for if you're going to be in a third, what I call a third world crap hole. I cover it with the stuff that you can, you know, pay a guy a dollar for an hour. You can lift his hood and charge your stuff up real quickly off of his battery underneath his hood. Many people make, you know, just one dollar a day in foreign countries. So you give him a dollar an hour to charge your phone, he'll be pretty darn happy. Up there is also a current meter that I highly recommend. It's just about a little bit smaller than your index finger. And it shows you the voltage and the amperes going through your USB uh, device. So you plug the charger in the wall, you plug in the meter, you plug your cable into the meter, and then you plug the cable into the phone. And it tells you how much amperage is going to the phone. Why do I recommend this thing? Well, one, it's about six bucks. It's lightweight. It's small. And if something's not charging or not working, you don't know whether it's the charger, the cable, or the phone. This will help you check real quickly and find out which one of the three are up uh, are not working. Also, I have a bunch of USB cables up on the website. My favorite ones from uh, Amazon and from Anchor. They're super heavy-duty, highest quality, highest rated rated cables. You always want to have one and a half times the cables that you need when you're traveling. Something that might surprise you. I also have up there a AA recharger, recharging device. It's a USB device. You plug it into the USB port on your wall charger, and you put two AA batteries into it, and it charges them overnight. It doesn't charge them real quickly, okay? Now, when I travel, you ask about everyday carry. Uh, when I travel, I carry four lithium AA batteries, Energizer lithium batteries, and I char- carry six Energizer lithium AAA batteries. That's because my everyday carry flashlight is the Coast HP1, which is on the website. It's bright as heck and runs off of one battery. And my everyday carry headlamp is the Energizer headlamp that I talked about on previous shows. It's also on the website. Energizer takes three AAAs. The Coast takes one AA. So I got twice the amount of batteries for my headlamp. I got four times the amount of batteries I need for my flashlight. And then I also carry four AA rechargeables and six AAA rechargeables. And I'm always running off my rechargeables. The lithiums are for, like, everything's gone to hell, and I need to have extremely reliable batteries. Let's see. Also up there, I have the stuff that you really need when you're traveling through airports and you're going to be in these foreign hotels. I have uh, these these cubes. You plug them into the wall, and they got three outlets on them. You've seen them. Once you look at the picture on the website, you'll know what I'm talking about. I carry two cubes, two three-prong to two-prong adapters, and a 15-foot thin wire extension cord, like the one that's just got two wires on it, like a lamp cord. This way, if you're at the airport and there's a bunch of kids around the only outlet and charging their plane by, they're on their phones and their tablets by the outlet, and you got to charge up, you can walk up to the outlet, unplug one of their stuff, plug in your cube, plug their stuff into your cube, then you plug into your cube, and you go 15 away, 15 feet away from them with your extension cord, and you run your laptop or charge your stuff, whatever. And there's three of you, you or more, you can plug your other cube into that outlet on the end of the cord and you can all recharge 
happily and easily, and you don't have to be sitting on the floor next to the outlet for the vacuum cleaner. Also up there are uh, holders from Power Packs. They are these they are the most awesome battery holders you will ever find. They will protect your batteries when you travel. They won't short out. They won't get crushed. They won't get broken. You really, really want them. Also, I have information up there on uh, foreign travel for Americans. I got the State Department hotline phone number that you should have. I tell you about getting the phone number for embassies, and I give you the stuff to write this down so it's completely waterproof. That's everything in a nutshell. I really hope this helps you. I hope this helps other people who are listening and helps people in the future. Go look at Prep 1234. Read what I put up there. It will save you so much time and so much headache. And if you get into a problem, it will probably help save your butt. Like they say in Mexico, if you got a problem and you go to the police, you now have two problems. You don't want this happening to you. And if it does, you want to know who to call who can come and cover your butt. Thank you, everyone. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Council. Uh, all my stuff with Jack is at Stephen1234.com. Looking forward to talking to you later. Bye. Thanks for the great question. Hi, Jack. This is Joe from California. I was just listening to your podcast where you talked about a Yelp uh, for school, a school district, and uh, I think it's a, an amazing idea. Uh, at the university level, there is a, uh, a website called RateMyProfessor.com that uh, I used to use when I was going through uh, through, gra- uh, through undergraduate, and um, you could actually look up your professor and see what other students thought of them. And uh, as a person purchasing my college education, I sought out teachers that uh, gave the most value for the money. So just want to uh, share that with the listeners and with you. And uh, have a great day and keep up the good work. Thanks, Jack. Okay, for those who uh, didn't hear the, the previous week's uh, issue on a feedback show, not a call-in, but a feedback show where you, you email me your stuff, uh, somebody sent me an article that said, why don't we have a Yelp for teachers? Uh, instead of you know just having this uh, this type of technology available for restaurants, why don't, we, why don't we have a place where students and parents can rate teachers? And so I heard from a lot of you guys, and that's why I went ahead and decided to play this call as well, about RateMyProfessor.com. It turns out it's, it's for colleges, and you would think that would be the case by professor. Well, I also found another site called RateMyTeacher.com, and both sites actually redirect to the plural. Rate my teacher ends up redirecting to rate my teachers, and rate my professor ends up redirecting to rate, rate my professors, which seems like a good branding thing to buy both of those domains and make sure that you don't advertise for somebody else. It also seems highly likely that it might be one company or one entrepreneur that owns both of them, and that's great. Um, RateMyTeachers.com is getting really close to what we're talking about, um, but they're specifically listed as being for... High schools and colleges. But yet when I look at the, like, so my son went to Arlington School District, so when I do that, I see all the high schools, and I see some of the colleges in Arlington, but I also see junior highs and intermediate schools. So it doesn't prevent you from doing it, but, I mean, if you got on the site, you know, they're seeing an elementary school. So I guess anybody can create anything on this site. I think it's... It's the step in the right direction. But I guess maybe what these guys need is some more participation. 
So if you have a teacher that you think does a great job, I think you should get on RateMyTeachers.com and you should review them. And that would be if you're a student or a parent. And that would be a good idea. And if you have one that you think does a shitty job, I think you should, I think you should present your case for that too. And I'd be interested to hear if anybody writes a poor review, if it ends up removed or anything like that. Because the reviews are remarkably positive on a site like this. I, I didn't really see a whole lot of... And, and I'm, I'm wondering now, I'm looking at the elementary schools, that's why I'm pausing a little bit. Um, I don't see any of the schools actually have reviews. So maybe you don't create the profile for the school you're reviewing a teacher at. You have to find it. If it's not there, you can't do it. But there are elementary schools listed, and maybe the elementary schools don't have a lot of reviews because if somebody landed on the page and, uh, pay, pay, uh, the site and didn't go deeper, they, they wouldn't really be able to realize that the elementary schools are there. So this actually looks like it's really the type of site I'm talking about. Again, it's called RateMyTeachers.com, and... Um, It, it does have elementary schools, et cetera, listed. This is why I think this is important, by the way. If we're going to have any impact on the current system, you better do it before the kids are in high school. Did you hear what Matt Powers said during his interview when I asked him about you know his methods of teaching and how well they work and all? He said well, they work good, but they would work so much better if the children were whole when they got here, if they were pure when they got here. They've been so systematized by the time they get to, to, to someone like Matt that it, it takes, you know, half the work is getting them in a position to be able to be self-learners again. But I see this as a step in the right direction. What I think, like, the next evolution, though, would be is a website for rating teachers that are not in schools. Mentors, like RateMyMentor.com. Uh, a site for reviewing people that you learn from, whether it's podcasters, YouTubers, people that sell private uh, tuition courses, you know, people that do subscription services, whatever, because I think that's the future. I think a public institution controlling education is an outdated model that needs to be put down like an old lame horse. It's not that it wasn't ever good for anything. It was, it's not that it wasn't ever useful. It, it's maybe not even that there might be a, not be a few of the old horses in the herd that might be able to carry on for a while. But in the end, you're getting to a point where, it's, I hate to put it this way, but it's time for the pet food factory for the public education system. It, it's, a, it's a novel idea that did what it did, and it's done its time, and it's, it's ready for it to go away. There's, there's, no, there's nothing to be gained anymore. From the centralized control of knowledge, from the centralized control of education, if that system wants to exist, it needs to exist solely as one option in a competitive landscape with thousands of options. You know, Stephen was just talking about all these different iPhone cases you can get for all these different power needs and stuff like that. But just think about it this way. If you wanted to get a basic iPhone case, how many colors can you get it in today? How many patterns? How many designs? Can't you even upload your own picture to some sites and order a one-off iPhone case with a picture of your dog on it, if that's what you want to do? And do you have to buy an iPhone? Can you also get an Android? And if you're still back in the, in the 90s, a BlackBerry or whatever, don't you have millions of options for cell phones? How many computers are there out there today? 
How many different podcasts are available? How many different websites are available? How many different blogs can you read? How many different models are there for you to get your information? Some people still read newspapers, but let's face it, the newspaper is another, you know, horse that's ready for the freaking pet food factory, man. I don't mean to disrespect horses. It's just an analogy people can understand. I mean, the, the newspapers are honestly, the horse has died. It's fallen over in the field. It's bloated in the sun, and botfly larvae are crawling around in its skin, and there's some people that still can't accept that the horse is dead. Public education isn't there yet. That horse is moving awful slow, the sun's awful hot, and there's not a lot we can do to save it, nor should we. We should be taking heroic measures to save a dying horse. We should let the horse die with dignity, okay? That's where I think we are with public education. So I think there's actually a lot of scripts out there, like like you guys that are coders, like free or cheap scripts to do review sites. Like you can just install one and customize a little bit and get it up and running like that. It'd be interesting to see somebody put ratemyeducator.com up or something like that. I'm not doing it, all right? I don't want to partner in it. But I'm telling you, if you build it and it works, I'll let people know about it, you know? And if 10 people do it, I'll let people know about all 10 of them, and the best one wins. Uh, I don't, I'm not a bandwidth mentally. I, I, I can't try to like build all these little satellite sites myself anymore. But that's, you want a site that could make you a lot of money in the end? RateMyEducator.com. RateMyMentor.com. Something like that. And I don't know if those are even available or whatever, but it would be for everything that's not public ed. Or maybe it's everything, period. You could rate a teacher. You can rate a business mentor, you can rate a podcaster, you can rate, but it's just like a single location where you can go and say, Tom Smith Physics. And see all the Tom Smiths that teach physics in any way. And go and go, you know, I don't know, Michael Cologne Business, and find all the Michael Colognes that teach business type things. And, and just page through and I mean it, it seems like something would lend itself easy to an app being created for it and I, I think people want to learn stuff and just knowing exactly who is well thought of and, and who is worth your time and your money would be extremely valuable I mean we had a show we have a show coming up on Tuesday on automation great guy really cool guy named Eric Escobar Talks about all these different ways you can do automation using things like Raspberry Pi and other things on your homestead. Open your chicken coop door every morning, turn on lights, do predator protection, close the blinds, turn the air conditioner off, whatever you want to do. All kinds of things you can do. And he said, you know, he learned most of his stuff online and YouTube and what have you. And he gives some advice and some places you can go take full-on courses and stuff like that. But what if you could go to a site and look up automation educators? and find them rated, and then rated by, like, beginner, you know, intermediate, advanced. Because if, if I'm a student that's, that's advanced, I'm looking for teachers that are highly rated for advanced students in my subject, but if I'm just learning about it, I want a highly rated teacher for the beginner. Don't you think with that type of technology, which is it's simple technology, a review site is simple technology. Everybody from Angie's List to Amazon to eBay has reviews. But if it were formatted for this to make it easy to use, fast to find, don't you think 
that has legs. So if somebody wants to build it, build it, and then let me know you built it. Um, I just think it's an idea whose time has come. And let's, let's put the dead horse down. All right, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I'd be interested in hearing your take on the uh, military operation dubbed Operation Jade Helm um, that's going to take place in the southwestern states, including your home state of Texas. Just would like to hear what you think about that and some of the apparent disinformation that's coming out um, from the usual suspects of several news broad news uh, agencies. Anyway, I'd like to see what you think. Thanks. I actually tried to talk about Jade Helm on Monday and ended up deleting my segment on it, not including it in the show, because I was having a jack snap out on it on how ridiculously stupid uh, the outlets like Alex Jones are in talking about Jade Helm like they're, oh, they, they see the entire state of Texas as the enemy because we're fighting for freedom here. Shut up, Alex. Really. I mean, I have gone from I kind of sort of like Alex to like I want to like Alex, but I can't. I just think the guy's full of shit. He's a full of shit, fear-mongering asshole. And yes, he breaks some really important news and stories sometimes, but if he's in that line of work, when something's legitimate, of course he's going to cover it. But 90% of what comes out of his mouth is complete and total bullshit. And in this case, it is once again. And people like Mike Adams, uh, the, 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 the yellow journalist of the decade with natural news, parroting this shit. And of course, the minute him and Alex became, you know, buddies, I think it got worse on both ends. Um, this is stupid. Okay, Jade Helm is a military training operation. It's going on in the United States of America. Um, we do training like this in countries all over the world all the time, and you wonder why people wish that we weren't living, you know, we didn't have bases in our country. How does it feel? If you want a nation that sees liberty as being military interventionist uh, policy, that's liberty, then this is what it looks like. The military trains for things, and, well, they're training for martial law. This is not a training exercise for martial law. This is not a training exercise for martial law. Martial law training would involve local police departments, not notifying them that you're going to be doing this, but you don't enact martial law with, with Navy SEALs and special forces. You enact martial law with sheriff's departments and metropolitan police forces. That's why they're militarizing them. See, this is a, a perfect example of people worrying about shit that they shouldn't be worrying about and ignoring shit they should be worrying about. See, there's a, a, a police force, an independent school district police force. Okay, my first concern is that there's an independent school district police force. We have an ISD police. Why the hell does an ISD need a police force, okay, in California, that was given an APC, right, an armored personnel carrier, Really, we're militarizing not only our local police force, but in, I mean, come on, this is a concern to me. But then we're worried about the troops. Now, here's the other thing. A lot of the people that are chattering about this Jade Helm thing on Facebook, they're the people that every other post is a picture of the troops and how awesome they are and how great it is and support the troops. And you can't support the troops if you don't support their mission. And they love the troops until the troops are training in America where they say they want them to come back to. As you can see, I got a little bit animated about this. And I'm not animated about the fact that it's going on. Um, I'd like to see a lot of things changed about U.S. military and foreign policy. I really would. But they are what they are. 
And our military is going to train, and conducting training exercises is typical and normal. And the things about Jade Helmet, they say, are alarming and concerning. Like anybody that you encounter, as part, if you're a covert operative and you're intermingling with the public, you're to see anybody as hostile. Duh. Of course you are. You're in a training mission where your role is as a covert operative and you're not to be detected. If you went on that mission in, in another country, anybody that you encounter, you have to see as potentially hostile. This is not because they think Texas and Utah are going to be the first states to secede from the Union. And, 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 and people like Alex Jones are beginning to sicken me. And I'll tell you why it's getting worse with people like him. When you sell bullshit to people for over a decade... And all the things that you tell them are going to happen. They're going to put you on a FEMA train and lock you in camps. And you tell them that shit for so long, and it doesn't happen, and you got to keep selling your miracle mineral supplement, what other garbage you have on your website, okay? Then you have to start sensationalizing the things that aren't actually sensational to keep the whole facade up. Our government is not made up of nice guys that, that care about you. And, and they are a danger. And the, the march of tyranny does continue on a daily basis. But let's be honest about what the threats are. Now, I don't like the militarization of our police. And I have to tell you that I much more fear, fear militarized police than I do the United States military. I really do. It's a lot easier to sell a, a cop 15 years on the job that the guy in his county is an enemy, than it is to sell, sell to a 20-year-old soldier that is his uncle on his farm is his enemy. There's a reason you keep military and police separate from each other. The military are to cede to the nation's defense. They are specifically set up for the purpose of repelling enemies of the state and defending against enemies of the state. That is the military's purpose. Now, I know what you're thinking when you hear enemy of the state. They think that's us now. I'll get to that. But that's what the military is for. And enemies of the state specifically exist outside of the state that the military defends. Okay? That's why most military battles are fought either in defense of land or in offense in another land. Okay? Against an international enemy, another state. Got it? That's the role of the military. That is the only role of the military, especially the military under United States federal government control. The, the, the mission of law enforcement is to protect and serve the people of the state. When you take military thinking and put it into a organization like local PD or state PD, or sheriff's departments, and you put military operational thinking into those organizations, which then becomes protection from enemy of the state, and the only people they really look at every day are the citizenry that they're supposed to be protecting, they begin to see the citizens as the enemy of the state. That's why the two should not entwine, period. That's why there is no place for military operational thinking in law enforcement activity. And there should be no law enforcement activity other than self-policing like military police 
within the military circles. Our military should not be, you know, <laughs> should not be policing other nations. Our military should exist for our own defense. Jade Helm is a military operation training. That's all it is. And if you know what? Let me just put it to you this way. If your military were covertly conducting training operations so that they could infiltrate you and, and, and were worried the state of Texas was going to secede or some stupid shit like that area and turn the entire state of Texas, some other nonsense these idiots are telling you, they wouldn't make it publicly known that that's what they were doing as part of a giant training exercise. Yes, the military conducts training. It's normal. Get over it. And again, the, mo the, 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 the deepest irony are the flag wavers supplying support our troops and then freaking out when our troops train in their own backyard. There's a lot to worry about. Jade Helm? <laughs> I don't give a fiddler's fart about Jade Helm, and you shouldn't either. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Richard. I have a it depends question for you regarding permaculture. My question is on swales when you have high water tables and sandy soil, as well as issues with septic leach fields. Background is northern Wisconsin, zone 5A. The water table is about five foot below grade, according to surveyors and well diggers in the area from the uh, reports I've pulled up. Um, the, the soil is very, very sandy, which is why most people have sandpoint wells in the area. My question is, is we do have pretty decent water, but I wanted to put in some, you know, micro, very, very slight swales in as far as for feeding the trees that I'm going to be planting in what was once a very, quote-unquote, pretty front grass yard. And I don't want to do that as far as for the water infiltration, if that is going to affect a mound system um, Uh, septic, as well as destabilizing possibly a little bit by adding more water uh, to an already high water table with that infiltration. Um, like you said, maybe I'm just, you know, in a past episode just recently, maybe I'm just way overthinking it, um, but I just I don't want to do too much. I was also thinking um, maybe just planting the trees directly, mulching, and then putting in some hugel beds to wick some of the water because uh, it is uh, rainy. We do get rain spells, but not massive downpours. And from what I've gathered from local uh, sources is that really it's pretty decent for for water, uh, other than probably two to three weeks in the summer where you do need to do some additional actual watering, um, at least for lawns and things like that. So if you had anything to add, uh, I'd appreciate it. I know a lot of it probably depends but um, if there's any insights or, or ways I could get steered in the right direction. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so, yeah, you're overthinking it, and here's why you're overthinking it. So I have a place with sandy soil that's easy to penetrate where when I put a tree in and I establish it over a season or two with good management practices, it is going to put roots down right straight down to five feet. And soil like that, it's inconceivable that a 10-foot tree isn't going to have at least 5-foot deep roots right into the water table. At that point, that tree doesn't care whether you water it or not because it's got a permanent supply of water. At 5 feet of depth to the water table, if that's truly the depth, you're almost too shallow 
Like, the trees will be fine, but if you were, like, at three, you might have to berm it up just to get the tree roots out of the water. So what you're going to have trees, they're going to they're drive down those roots, and they're going to start feathering out, and they're going to they're gonna delve right into the edges of that water table. And the only thing you need to do is, is, is mulch and provide some fertility and rock on with life. The only way I would recommend any type of micro-swaling in your environment that you just described would be if you're having erosion issues. So if you're having erosion issues, then you've got an issue that you need to worry about. But, I mean, erosion can be handled with vegetation. So deep-rooted perennials, I mean, you put stuff down like medic and alfalfa and perennial prairie grasses, and their root systems can get down five feet. So you might have to look after it a bit until they get there. But once they get there, it's done. In other words, this is not an application of swale situation. I say this all the time. Just because, just because swales work doesn't mean they're always useful or necessary or even beneficial. It's situationally dependent. It depends, just like you started your question with. So unless you can come up with a reason for swales, and feeding trees is not a reason for swales, okay? Unless you can come up with a reason for swales, this doesn't make any sense. Let me tell you where it would make sense. Large, broad-scale, you know, multi-acre landform in your climate. Areas that are sopping wet during the rainy season and areas that are bone dry in the dry season. And now we go in and we do swales, probably not very large, probably something you could do with a, 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 a two-bottom plow. On key line, we spread the moisture from the valleys to the ridges. And we actually mitigate the moisture where it's excessive and mitigate the dryness where it's insufficient. That might work. That might be a great idea. And then we put in little pocket ponds and stuff like that. I mean, this is what Mark Shepard's doing. He's right in your backyard. He's in central Wisconsin, north central Wisconsin, I think. So that's, you know, but he, I also know where he's at. It's not sandy soil. You're in a different part of the state where he's at. It's freaking clay, hard-ass clay. So that's a little bit different as well because clay holds the water higher uh, in the soil than the sand does, etc. So, I mean... But if you said to me, I want to put in a half acre of trees in a place where we only get three really dry weeks out of three really dry hot weeks out of the year, uh, and I think I should put swells, and I say no, you shouldn't. Not unless you're doing something with them. Now, let's say you're putting in dams and you're using the swales to move water from different parts of the land into the dams and handle overflow and control where the overflow goes and things like that. Yeah, micro swales in a front yard of sandy soil with water five feet deep. No, no. Sheep mulch, plant your trees, move on with life. Quit thinking. Quit making something hard that isn't hard. This is the same thing. This is appropriate technology to the situation. Not everybody should have an herb spiral just to be a quote-unquote permaculturist. Many places you put an herb spiral in, it turns into a weed spiral. Right? Um, this is uh, an example. Let's not try to back the technique into the situation. Let's evaluate the situation and use the proper technique. It makes me think of Mark Shepard again with the mass delusion of the rain barrel. We get a roof, 2,000 square feet of roof, you know, has a thousand gallons of watershed by a half inch of rain, and then we stick a 50 gallon rain barrel on it, and we flood out our basement when the rain barrel overflows into the basement uh, with the other 950 gallons of water. That's the type of thinking you have when you're trying to put a swale in to feed a tree. A swale is not for feeding a tree. A swale is to, to grow a tree. And it's to grow a tree where a tree otherwise won't grow without it. 
or where you can speed up and accelerate and enhance the development of the trees with the swales. Swales are about spreading water out as well as infiltrating it in. But, I mean, basically you have a giant, you don't even need a hugel bed. What do you need a hugel bed for? All you need to do is plant plants that can reach five feet down. And if you have water at five feet, the water table, if the water table is actually five feet, you might want to verify under your feet that that's where that water is. But if the water table is five feet, then I'm going to tell you that the, 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 the soil is never bone dry three feet down. Ever. That the soil itself is going to do some wicking if you're sitting on water at five. So anything that reaches three feet has almost a permanent supply of water forever. Hoorah. Count your blessings. Now don't try to plant an orange. Plant the things that grow in Wisconsin and watch them blow up for you. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Dave from North Carolina. Uh, just had a quick question regarding episode 50, 1542 uh, about running and managing in business. I don't ever expect to be managing a business like yours or in any way, shape, and form like that. But I did want to have a ask a question about, you know, how you decide how to price stuff. And, like, I'm, I'm a lifetime member of the MSB and wanted to know how you choose when and where to implement that option and, uh, you know, how that affects your business overall. Thank you very much. Have a good day. All right, so this is a very complex question. I could probably give a one-hour college-level course in and only scratch the surface of, you know, exactly how you price things. But I can give you some basic guidelines and some understanding. So the first one is what we call a pricing curve. And we call it the backside of the pricing curve. So believe it or not, if I price something too cheaply, no one will buy it. Because when no one will believe that it has value. Now, if I give away a free membership at a website, people might do that because it's not really seen as something that's going to cost me money. But if I put up a knife on my website, so this is one of the greatest knives in the world. It's made out of Damascus steel. It slices, it dices, yada, yada, yada. It's a Ginsu. And, and beyond, and it also is handmade by you know uh, Sherpas in 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 in, in uh, what is it uh, Tibet and whatever you know. And I just went on and on about how awesome this knife was. You're thinking this is like a thousand dollar knife. If I say that knife is four dollars, I'll sell almost no knives. Counterintuitive, I know, but I, I will sell almost no knives because you know what you're going to do. You're going to look at it and go bullshit. This is some piece of junk I don't need. As I increase the price. I actually increase the number of units that I will sell because your expectation of the value begins to be realized. So at like 50 bucks, you're thinking, man, this is still really cheap for a knife like that. But hey, I've got the super duper Sherpa Ginsu guarantee that says I'll get my 50 bucks back. I'll take a shot at this. You know, if it's something described that awesome, I can get to like $90. Right, you, you sort of say, "Well, that's if I have the money, that's a good deal," and you, and you actually start if you get the right amount of exposure, you sell even more. This is mass market pricing, just so you understand. And the the higher you go, you keep getting more and more and more and more customers until you hit a bell curve. 
You at the peak of this bell curve, it's the maximum amount of customers that will ever be brought to you based on the price to product ratio. So the basic marketing and understanding of what the product is and the basic price of the product, there's a point at which you hit a sweet spot where you can't do any better. Raising the price now begins to cost you customers. And as you do this, the bell curve is very gradual. It starts to come down really, really slow, really, really slow, really, really slow. And then all of a sudden, it steepens and it drops way off. So now I say, well, the knife's $20,000. No one wants to buy it. It's not worth twenty grand. It's not a $20,000 knife. I don't care what it does. Unless you push a button and a laser beam comes out and it's a mini lightsaber, it ain't worth twenty grand. So I'm not selling any. So I've gone to the other extreme of repelling business. Don't want to do that either. Most people, because they think more is better, would say, well, then the perfect place to price your product is right at the top of that bell. Where you get the most amount of customers. That is the worst place. That is the worst place. You're actually better off before you get there or right, before, right after you go over it. But your, your sweet spot is right at the point. It's almost like a key point. And uh, it's like a reverse key point almost in, 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 uh, in, in landform. Right where you've dropped off some, but you haven't gone steep, but just before you go steep in your drop-off. That's your perfect place. And the reason you want to price your product there is that the people that are your biggest pain-in-the-ass customers are all the ones that will drop off first, or the majority of them will. If you're selling a $50 product, a software product, And you would sell, let's say that that's the perfect price for your $50 software, 50 bucks. That, that's perfect. You've hit it. You've nailed that backside of the curve. If you price it at 40 and you get more customers, they're the customers that will tie up your customer service line for four hours with bullshit questions and will erase every dollar of profit you've made from them. That's who they are. You don't want them. So you want to price your product high enough to scare away about 10% of the people that would be your customers if the price was a little bit lower. And you make more money that way. You make more money a couple different ways. One, you just, because you're selling at a higher ARPU, average revenue per unit, okay, you just end up with a higher gross sales, believe it or not. You have a greater profit margin on the individual product, and your burden of support declines by as much as 80%, it's been determined. So you will do eight times or, 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 you know, 80%. So if you would have had 10 support calls today, now you have two. Because you price out the cheapskate. The person that will make the decision not to buy over the last $10 or an expensive product, let's say $50, is the customer you never, ever want in business. So that's part of it. Then there's unique things where you have to worry about what you call internal cannibalization is, is another term you'll hear thrown around a lot. Usually no one has to explain the internal, so they just call it cannibalization in, in business meetings. Cannibalization would be when I worked for Fluke Networks, we had a very expensive cable tester sold for about $7,000. We came up with a scaled-down version to address the lower-cost consumer Uh, the more of the, instead of the cable tech that went out and dedicated, did the work every day, the in-house guy that only needed a tester once in a while, and it did like, you know, 60% of what the advanced tester did. It wasn't rated to certify cable or whatever, but it, it would help you figure out where your problem was so you could fix it. 
and we thought this is a great product. But one of the things we had to consider was, okay, the only purpose of this product is to get business that we will not get with the more expensive piece of equipment. That's the only purpose of it. There is no reason... I know you think there is, but there isn't from a business standpoint, from economic-driven standpoint. There is no reason to bring that tester on the market other than to get business we won't get with the, the product we're already selling. And every single customer that says, I was going to buy A, but B costs less and it's good enough, is one sale of A we don't get. That's cannibalization. You asked about lifetime membership. That's where I have to meter how many lifetime memberships I sell because, in effect, it's always my best, most loyal customer that wants to become a lifetime member at $300. Now, here's the thing. $300 is six years of retention, okay? So I had no real reliable data to know how many of my customers would I retain for six years when I introduced my first you know, salvo of lifetime memberships at like three. But I can tell you that there were customers who had been a customer for three years who switched over. So what I'm doing is I'm taking six months of membership up front or six years of membership up front and I am cannibalizing whether or not I'm actually doing it in total dollars. I'm cannibalizing my recurring revenue model. So let's say the customer would have retained for four. I sell them six years at one time at $300. I end up ahead in that model by $100. I get $300 instead of $200. I get it now versus later, and it's a bird in the hand versus two in the bush. Okay, But if that customer was going to retain for four years, there's a certain amount of value in the business itself to know that I'm going to have $50 a year from that customer spread out over four years for the cash flow side of things. So my cannibalization is different than Fluke selling a product because I'm selling a recurrent service. So how do I make the decision? I just do what I feel with this. Every once in a while I'm like, you know what, I bet you some people would like a lifetime membership opportunity. So I'll say I'll do 20. And I'm always looking at like what's my, the, the big thing is what's my ratio. So my goal is of all the active members I have, I never want to have more than about 5% be lifetime members at any one time. So as the base grows, I'm willing to sell, you know, up to, up to 10% and let it ebb back to five. That's, and, and I don't have, there's no way I can justify that with a Harvard business book. I look at it as it's my job to serve you guys as best I can. I have to do what's right for my business so I can continue to do that. But on the other side of it, if people want the opportunity to become lifetime members, then I need to make it available from time to time. So a couple times a year as I do that. So what it gives me is it gives me a nice pop of cash. I mean, let's face it. It's nice that I can say, you know what, I'm going to do 10 this time. And in two hours, $3,000 comes in. That's great. But that's that's also now... Because of the way I do things, those customers re represent little to no future revenue, unless they come to a workshop or something. So I've then killed the future revenue from that customer. So I've cannibalized it. But, again, I can do it profitably if I'm smart about it. So it's a little more sophisticated to figure out than just where do I price the product. Now, how did I come up with the original $50 a year for the MSB? I looked at it this way. Um, 
I started out with what is a price that anybody that really wanted to be a member could afford. Like, there is no one out there that should be joining this thing anyway that, that, that can't afford this. And it was $5 a month. That was the number. I was like, there's no one out there that I want as my customer, to be blunt, who is in a place financially where they have enough stability that they should even buy. Because if you're not buying because you're trying to pay off your debt or whatever, then good, don't, okay? But most people can, can crap five bucks a month if they really want to do something. So I knew that was something people could do. $60 a year is what that came out to. And I, I, then I ran the, the sanity test. Is this viable? If I need $100,000 in gross revenue with you know $10,000 worth of server fees a year and all these other things, um, and I need to come away with you know $50,000, $60,000 a year, is it financially viable that I could get, let's say, 2,000 customers in a couple of years and make this business float? And the answer to that question was, yes, it is. So it financially works. The, the metric of the total number of customers are worth worth it. The, 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 the volume of growth is, is there. All of this financially works. So it financially worked, and it was affordable to the customer. And then I just looked at it and said, well, would I rather have $5 a month or $50 a year? I'd rather have the money all at one, a bigger lump sum per payment. That, and then spread that out over you know people renewing in different months, and so that's better cash flow. And it's, it's less likely that a person will cancel. And I've, I've now told, I can tell you this too. I get far more people to, that cancel, far more people cancel who are $5 customers every month than who are 50. Because they, they, every month they're seeing the five bucks. And if they've taken a break from the show for a couple weeks and they see the five bucks, eh, do I really need this? The person that gets hit once a year with the, the recurrent cost goes, eh, I like Jack and like what he does and, You know what? I got more than fifty dollars worth of discounts last year. The guy with five bucks that hadn't bought anything in three months is thinking that's just five bucks. The guy that sees the fifty dollars ten. So I will always leave the, the the other frequencies, but my best customers are annual customers. Then the discount for military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and, and first responders. Um, I don't generally disclose the discount. I will tell you today that's significant. It's it's twenty five percent. The show was built to a point where it paid my bills. It was financially viable. It was sustainable. It was standing on its own feet. And it was purely a giving back. It was like, you know what? We had a, I remember being a soldier making $600 a month. I'm sure they make more than that now, but I remember being a soldier making $600 a month. And I remember seeing other soldiers who made about the same money, but got a little bit of money for food and housing, and with three kids. And I just went... If, if, if that person's listening to me and wants to support what I do, I should make it easier. And so I thought about the, law, the, the, the salaries of beginning law enforcement personnel and everything else, and I also thought about it this way. And this is another thing people have asked me about. You know, when you're, you're such an anarchist, and before that you're such a libertarian, um, why do you give a discount to law enforcement? They're the, the gun of the state. And, and my response to that was always, please tell me what you would think about a person in law enforcement that listens to this show daily and then decides they want to financially support the show. Is that a person you want to stay in law enforcement or a person you want to leave law enforcement? And I usually get a response back that goes something like this. Damn it, Jack. Because they realize, like, oh, wow, yeah. If you got a guy out there, you know, protecting and serving, listens to this raving lunatic... 
tunes back in after he beats up his brother officers for breaking their oath, still wants to be there, still wants to... Man, that's a guy on our side. We need that guy. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the discount was just a giving back, and that's why it didn't happen. Like, the discount was never about making money. Right? I, the business had to be viable before I could do the discount. It wasn't a gimmick. And at this point, it's become a significant source of revenue. But see, that's the other thing. In business sometimes, what doesn't seem to make sense when you do it for the right reason, but you have the stability to be able to do it, it becomes a really big win for everybody. So pricing is a science, and then once a business is stable, it becomes far more of an art. So I said I could do an hour. There's 15 minutes. I hope that helps folks understand the psychology of pricing products and services to your market. If you're going to be successful in business, it's something you do have to get right. Let's take one more. Let me see. Is it one more? Mm, yeah, one more, and we're done for the day. Hey, Jack. Matt from Pennsylvania calling with a quick question. In your opinion, what are the pros and cons of a Master Gardener course? Both or keeping in mind the taker would be a novice gardener and also in light of uh, how the money might be better spent in pursuing any variety of permaculture well, Thanks, Jack. I have mixed emotions about this question. First, I'm not a master gardener. I've never been to a master gardener class, so I'm going to be pretty lenient on anything that I say negative there because I try not to be negative about something if I don't really know enough about it to be justifiably negative. But what I do know about master gardeners is this is what they say about themselves. Master gardeners are members of a local community who take an active interest in their lawns, trees, shrubs, flowers, and gardens. They're enthusiastic, willing to learn and help others, and able to communicate with diverse groups of people. I love the shit out of the sentiment there. I really do. I love being a community member, teaching other people, always learning, and being able to communicate with diverse groups of people so that they can learn what you have to teach. I think that's great. And I think that might be the biggest value, is that the whole thing is designed to not just be like, I'm a master gardener, now worship me. It's... Let me help you because I'm a master gardener. Now, the, 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 the thing is, trees and shrubs and flowers, okay? So if your primary goal in life with your uh, activity from a horticultural standpoint is to grow food, uh, f you know, shrubs and flowers and lawns and trees are ways you can produce food, but that's not what I see master gardeners accomplishing. And what I've noticed is if I go to a farmer's market or something like that and there's an area being maintained by a, a master gardener group, uh, I look at it and go, that looks like it was installed by Home Depot employees. And in master gardener programs, it's not an organic program. So they use chemical fertilizers. Now they're really big on, let's use it proper application, proper times, proper amounts, let's not create additional service runoff. Stuff like that. So if it's going to be used, then it's it's best. And it's not that there are no organic master gardeners. There certainly are. But the master gardener program in of itself does not create organic gardeners. Okay, so I almost see this as the university system intellectually masturbating itself as to doing something sustainable when the majority of what they do is wholly unsustainable. That, that's That's kind of how I see it. That said, I think if you went and took Master Gardener courses, you'd meet a lot of really awesome people. 
and you would get some really great horticultural training. And almost everybody involved, if you said, well, I'll learn all this stuff, but I want to focus on organic techniques only, would respect that. And all you can ever ask from anybody else in society is respect. And I think you might learn a lot about teaching, and you would learn a lot about the different plants that do well in your, your, your biome. And even though the ag extension agent or university representative that might be in charge of the program, because they're not always that way either. Sometimes they're just regular, normal, other master gardeners like you, but uh, might not be of that bent. You might meet plenty of people who are. And you might learn about a variety of grape, for instance, that does really well in your area. That might be worth the, the, the cost of, of admission alone if that's important to you. So I think it can be really beneficial, but I think that what I've, what I've seen, again, I don't want to be unduly cruel to an organization I don't know that much about, but what I've seen at various arboreums, botanical gardens, public spaces from master gardeners is ornamental mulches, ornamental plants, um, you know, Uh, what do you call it? Formal type of arrangements, formal prunings. Even when I see, you know, a native's garden, it's still done very much like a formal garden. It's very much landscaping. Okay, so I think you can learn some good stuff from landscaping, but landscaping isn't what I do. Okay, I'm not a landscaper. I'm a permaculturist. I'm a. I consider myself. A, I think where we have in common is I consider myself a horticulturist, one who cultures plants. But I culture plants in more of a natural environment rather than a controlled environment. And so to me, I think you would get a greater bang for your buck in taking, let's say, a permaculture design course. I, I really do. But I think you might learn a lot more about your local soil types from Master Gardeners. You might learn more about doing a soil test from Master Gardeners. You might learn more about individual herbs that grow well in your climate. In fact, you probably will. Because there's not going to be a whole lot in your PDC about herbs that grow really well uh, you know, on South Street in Sheboyganville. But your Master Gardeners probably know what grows really well there. So I think there's value there, but you got to kind of work out for yourself if this really makes sense uh, for you. And you know what you want to do, and what's your climate, what's your environment, what's your rainfall, how much space do you have to garden? Why are you doing this? Um, Master gardener course is really not so much for you to know to go do your own thing and go on with your life. It's really designed to be an educational outreach, so that you have these master gardeners that could go into a community and say, let's set up community gardens and what have you. I just again, nobody beat me up here because I'm, I'm being honest about it. I haven't seen. The master gardener groups doing much with anything edible. And I haven't seen them doing much with anything truly sustainable and organic. Now, I guarantee you, you can point to a person that's a master gardener, does everything organic, and grows a lot of food. Guarantee it. But the overall focus of the, the program in Arkansas and Texas, at least the parts I lived in, ain't there. So... You got to figure out what you want out of it. That said, what's the harm in checking it out? What's the harm in going down to one of the meetings and meeting some people and and, and taking like you know the, the the entry level stuff and seeing if it's for you? 
If nothing else, you'll make some new friends and you'll learn something about your community and your environment and your biome and your backyard. And how could I ever say that's not worth the effort? You know, I mean, it, if, you, if I was telling you to take a PDC, is there one near you where the person that you're going to go have it with is really switched on to your local thing? And how much does it cost comparatively? I, I don't know. And if you just want a garden, if you're not looking to you know build a food forest in your backyard, and you just want a garden, every technique that the master gardeners use to grow an azalea can be translated to growing a carrot. I mean, they do understand mulches and stuff like that. All you have to do is start moving to the organic equivalents. And I guarantee you, within the group, you'll find the organic people. You know, I would expect that you would anyway. But I, I don't know. I've just found a lot more of it to look like old ladies growing roses and rhododendrons than, you know, people my age concerned with growing high-quality food. So I, 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 I almost bet. I almost bet. I almost bet. In spite of me trying so hard not to offend you, I'm going to get some angry people emailing me about how wrong you are. Look, I'll almost bet there are places where the Master Gardener program is a whole bunch of organic vegetable growers. I just haven't found them yet. Maybe they're in your backyard, so at least check it out. Anyway, I, I just want to finish up today with saying that I think anything at all that gets you out into your community, lets you meet other people that live around you with common interests, and furthers your ability to educate yourself and teach others is a worthwhile thing. And if we're going to solve a lot of problems in this country, we're going to need a lot of leaders. Okay? Actual leaders. Not rulers, not bosses, not emperors, not people in charge. Leaders. Remember always, folks, always remember this. If you remember nothing else I've ever said, leaders go first, but they come last. That's how you know they're leaders. The leader is the guy who's ahead of you all the way up until it's time to eat, and then he voluntarily stands in the back of the line. That's a leader. And leaders are first and foremost educators. They're educators. They're teachers. So whatever you can do to further your ability to teach others, please do it. Please do it. I think that the most noble thing we can do to change life for the better is learn how to do things for the better and then teach others to do them as well. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Show you.